Hello. Hello, John. Hi there, Dan. How are you today? Good. How are you? Good. Um, that's nice. Yes. Um, is it snowing there? Oh, no, no. It's actually finally a little bit warmer today here. It is maybe six, yeah, 62 degrees. Sunny, beautiful sunny. Yeah. It was, it was cold. It's going into the 30s at night, which no one here likes. It's nice to live in a southern clime. Yeah. Yeah. It has its advantages at this time of year. Because mm-hmm. we won't, mm-hmm. you know, we're not going to get any, any problems. Oh, but it's 110 degrees in the summer. <laughs> I know. <and> scorpions. <laughs> yeah. I keep forgetting that. Yeah. Part. The last, um, the last summer wasn't horrible and this winter hasn't been bad, but it, it, it the potential is there always for it to get completely <laughs> unreasonable. <laughs> What's the scorpion index at right now? You know, that would be really cool if there was a site that would show you that I, I don't want to jinx anything, but I've only seen one in the almost 10 years that I've been here, but I've seen maybe three, three or four tarantulas, which is not a thing that I want to see. I'd rather see the scorpion (laughs) than the tarantula. Yeah. The, the, uh, the story of you, um, finding tarantulas, (laughs) uh, that's very popular here with my family. Oh Yeah. They are, uh, well, there's one member of my family that's a, uh, that's a pretty serious arachnophobe, mm. but nobody likes the spiders. I do, but none of the other people do. Wow. And so, uh, whenever I regale them with stories of you chasing tarantulas out of your garage, <laughs> yeah. um, it, you know, it's one of those things that I say it offhand, but it clearly made a real impression because it comes up all the time. Mm-hmm. Dan Benjamin's tarantulas. Yeah, it's not, it's not my favorite, uh, part of living here. And I, I, you know, like I said, I don't want to jinx it, but I haven't seen one in a long time. That's good. Yeah. But there's jinx. something very unnerving about it because I know that they're harmless and I know that there's like, I think it's almost like, I've never heard of anyone being bitten by one. You would have to really want to be bitten by one. Like you would have to handle it. And in anger it, and even then, I don't, I don't know if they bite. I don't know how bitey they are, but the idea that there's something that looks like that and moves like that, that can easily enter your house is not, and apparently where I live, my house now, it's part of their, like, they live in Uh, in the hill country and they live in the woods and the trees and things like that. And where I live, apparently they (laughs) were in, in the middle of their sort of migration area. So at certain times a year, you see them kind of walking across the street, like out in front of the house on their way, wherever it is that they go. (laughs) And they're always going in the same direction. So it's, um, you know, there's that, which I don't care for, but yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just as soon never see one again. It's not that I, it's not that I want to do harm to them. No, 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 no. no. I just want to not, to not see them. I want to never see them. <laughs> it's as unnerving. You, as, <laughs> as you probably know, we're, we're, we have a lot of spiders up here. Mm. 
Spiders, spiders everywhere. In fact, I was looking at my new house today, and you know, at the in the autumn, the spiders all go and lay their egg pods. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was looking around the eaves of my house and thinking, like, got to come out here with the broom and get these egg pods down. It's not gonna. It's not going to change the fact that there are spiders everywhere at a certain for a certain month of the year, you know, spiders everywhere. But it's going to change the number of spiders that are actively like on my house. What kind of spiders are they and how big and describe them? Well, we have every kind of spider except for the big hairy ones that you have. The biggest ones are their whole their whole body and legs the whole bit the whole spider not not the body of the spider but the whole spider is about the size of a half dollar and i know that you're talking anyone, from like from like the edge of one leg to the edge of the opposite leg yeah legs middle, leg span the leg span the leg span but the <laughs> middle bit of the spider is fairly substantial they're not it's not like a the proportions aren't like daddy long legs the proportions are like big body and then pretty thick legs, you know, not spindly legs, but like solid yeah. legs. Mm-hmm. When I say it's about the size of a half dollar, I, I get the strong impression that anyone under the age of 40 has no idea what a half dollar looks like. Mm. Am I right? When was the last time someone gave you a half dollar in change? No, we have, I have run into those, um, the, one dollar coins that uh, we've talked about these coins. The what are the, what's the name of the one dollar coin that has a, like a Native American on it? The Sacagawea. Yeah, dollar. that's the one. The Sacagawea dollar. We we do have those in circulation here in Texas for some reason. A lot of them. Yeah, but a half dollar or or a silver dollar. Mm, I haven't seen those in forever. My every year when I was a kid, my granddad would get a little and it came in like a it was a sealed plastic ca- case container that would have that year's so like it would have like a, a a penny a dime you know a nickel a dime a quarter a half dollar and a silver dollar for that year and yes. there was one from like the year I was born and then it, I think for at least the first 10 years of my life he would get one every year um and that was always really cool but the idea, like, it's like a $2 bill. There's a lot of people that have never, that are young enough. They're not listening to this show, right? But no, of course they are. Do you think they are? Yes. Yes, absolutely they are. They're young enough to have never held or used, like, the idea of using a half dollar as valid currency, like walking into a store and saying, I'll, I'll take a pack of gum there and handing them a half dollar and, like, getting mm. change back. Yeah. I mean, I imagine there's, there are just enough $2 bills in circulation that every American who has ever used cash, because mm-hmm. I'm sure there are there are people listening to the show who very infrequently use cash. Yeah. But any American who has used cash has encountered at least one $2 bill in the wild. I think there are just enough of them out there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there are a lot of our listeners uh, in overseas territories who have their own quirky currencies. Right. Um, I've never fully understood how 
uh, the British currency, how they, how the denominations actually work. I don't, I don't understand the pound at all I, because I don't know what a pence is relative to a shilling. It's all very confusing to me. I'm sure I could. Oh, look it those up and, FYI, those are the same thing: a pence, a right. shilling, a loony, mm. all the same. A toonie, mm-hmm. all the same value. But uh, what you're talking about, your grandfather um, was getting mint sets. Mint sets. And then there are proof sets, which are those same coins, but but um, but with a with a very like interesting sort of glossy matte finish, not glossy or matte, but like it, a reflective kind of. Um, a proof set is. I'm looking at an image of a proof set and a mint set, and I think I th- the proof sets that I'm seeing in these images are more like what I'm describing. They mm-hmm. have the sealed. Yeah, here's one from '73. United they have States like a, proof a, set, mirror like kind of. Yeah, I'm sending you a picture one in uh, in in the chat. This is the kind of thing that he would get me. They were great. I loved these things. Yeah, that's they're very nice. I mean, they're I suppose very, you could still get them, but they don't make silver dollars anymore, do they? Uh, like an Eisenhower dollar? I don't think so. I mean, I remember and when those Kennedy, things Kennedy's were, on the half dollar, right? Kennedy's on the half yeah. dollar. Yeah, I remember when those were in circulation. I remember getting a Benjamin Franklin half dollar every <laughs> once in a while. We used to go through our coins to pick out the silver ones, and at one point, I had a huge bank. Uh, uh, you know, like a giant glass bottle full of pre-1964 American coinage, because 64 was the cutoff. Before that, you know, American silver coins were silver, made of silver. And um, after 64, they started to be an alloy. But you would find those silver coins in your in your uh, change all the time. And, and of course, after, after about 19... 19- 80 the silver coins were worth a bundle mm-hmm. the, their, yeah. their their meltdown cost but then someone broke into our house and stole all my silver coins oh, it was terrible sucks but i have a huge not huge let me let me walk that back yeah, let me really. walk that word back i have a coin collection that fits in a briefcase um very, very few of them are coins of any numismatical value. But I loved coins and precious metals when I was a teenager. And I would go to the coin shop and, you know, I couldn't buy anything that was interesting. But I, but they had Morgan silver dollars and stuff that you could buy. And, and I bought a bunch of them. Um, and it's the type of thing where... It, Again, there, there, there's nothing in my coins that are there. None of them are uh, valuable as coins, but mm-hmm. they're just valuable as metal. But then I don't know. So it went through some process, and now they're just valuable as sentimental items. Mm-hmm. Like, oh yeah, I've collected these coins, and um, either one day I get rid of them, <laughs> sell them, or. Um, or my daughter inherits a bunch of co- coins that aren't worth very much money. Right. Which is something I'm trying to avoid. I'm trying to avoid 
going through life with. I, I, I heard a story about someone that, that I know uh, who bought a junk house and cleaning it out, found a coin collection in it that was that basically worth what they'd paid for the house. Uh, you know, that type of thing is every, every scrounger's dream. But unfortunately, Dan, I've never had a no country for old men moment where I found a briefcase full of money or a truck, <laughs> a truck full of drugs. Right. Did you collect baseball cards or stamps or anything like that? Did you fall into any of those like 1950s kid tropes of, of, uh, uh, comic books you must have collected comic books. comic books yes i had so many comic books i started collecting those when i was 10 maybe 10 or 11 years old and really 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 got into that and saved them for you know i would read them and then i would put them in a bag and board them and keep them in the long boxes and then the long boxes were filling up underneath the bed and then they were stacked up in the closet and i kept them for a long time and i've actually I had purged them and then I kind of started over again, maybe like 10 or 15 years ago, recollecting them. And then I purged them all again, maybe five years or six years ago. Uh, so I don't have it. I think I have like a half dozen comic books now. And I was like, what am I saving these for? But when I went to get rid of them and sell them, there were some that had really gained in value. And I, I actually, the, the most valuable one that I ever sold was the, um, do you know who Usagi Yojimbo is? No. He is a rabbit who is a samurai. And that's all we need to say about that. But the first okay. the first appearance of him, uh, he's he's uh, drawn, the stories are illustrated and written by a guy, Stan uh, Sakai, who is really, really cool. He did, do you remember, I think it was called Gru? Yeah. Um, that comic, I think he was involved with that. He might have done the lettering for that, if I'm remembering right. But the first appearance of Usagi Yojimbo, which he's still doing or is still being done, um, was in this this weird comic called Albedo Anthropomorphics number two. And this came out at a time and it was like not collected at all. And no one knew that one day Usagi Yojimbo would be this celebrated samurai rabbit hero you know, going for decades. And, uh, and so there were very, very few of these ever even printed. And there were even fewer that were in good condition. There were even fewer that were like CGC rated and in the case and everything, speaking of cases. And I got one of these and I bought it at an, uh, like an online auction and I held on to it for like five or six years and I sold it for like, like three thousand dollars or something like that what? really <laughs> yeah and i think when i bought it i paid like a thousand bucks for it and everybody thought i was crazy i'm like uh-uh just hang on and yeah a few years later i like tripled the money that i invested in it and of course i never actually physically touched it because it was sealed in the case you know right. but um yeah there's there's that was my thing what about you did you collect i could i could see you more as a baseball card kind of a person than a comic book kind of a person. And certainly you did not have any football cards. I think you probably never owned a football card. No. And, and nor did I own a baseball card. You didn't you know that. Oh, I would have thought you would have done that. No, I, you know, little boys when I was growing up definitely fell into pretty 
pretty uh, rigid silos and categories of little boys. And mm-hmm. the, the superhero little boys, this is long before there was even the Superman movie. Mm-hmm. Um, in the 1970s, all we had were Spider-Man comics and the Silver Surfer and, you know, the old old school, the 60s and early 70s, I think you'd know, was a period of of high comic book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the, the little boys that really loved Batman and superhero comics, um, I, w- I was not one of those little boys. I did not identify with those comics at all and did not um, – didn't really even enjoy reading them. It wasn't only that I – didn't collect them like I didn't like them mm-hmm. I, I would uh, you know I didn't like the art I didn't like the something about me didn't like the suggestion of superheroes and then there were sports little boys whose I think in most cases it was that their fathers loved sports and so from a very young age they were raised in sports, uh, to love sports. I remember being a kid, you know, being a second or third grader and knowing these little boys that knew all these sports statistics and were really into the baseball players on different teams. Mm -hmm. And I just had no comprehension of what they were talking about and no interest in what they were talking about. I was like always dad, impressed that these little kids that, that were not, you know, they were my peers, they were, but looking back, we were all little, that would have all the, all the stats memorized, you know, like, yeah, like, oh, it always boggled my mind. Why would you want to memorize like stats of, of some player who played like 15 years ago? Like, that just never I, made I, sense I, to me. I, I, it never did to me either, and and uh, even when I was even when I was young, I was like, oh, "This is something. This is like a uh, like a cult of your family, right? That you couldn't possibly have found this on your own. This is something your dad has." I mean, I know so many parents that, in their desire to have their kids be cool or mm-hmm. know the cool things. Parents that are interested in things that enough that they're like, this is the cool stuff and this is not st- cool stuff. You know, from, from the time their kids were very little, they were like, here's the, these are the shows you got to watch and the bands you got to like. Mm-hmm. And those kids grow up and they're like, I love Led Zeppelin. It's like, well, yeah, I guess it just feels like, feels like that's a game that you're playing. That's like your parents are dressing you in a sailor suit kind of, you know? Um, and I get, I get it. I mean, I have, a, I have a couple of friends whose teenage kids are really cool, really cool, way cooler than I ever was right. Way cooler than I am now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they're 16 years old and they have impeccable taste in fashion and music and stuff. And it just, but it also feels like their paper doll that was dressed up by their folks until, until they, had it nailed and who knows what's going to happen when they get to be 22. Are they going to, are they like in the cool from now on and they're just going to be cool forever? Like that's, I mean, I guess does once you prime the motor of cool, 
does that motor <laughs> then run on its own and they'll discover what's cool in their world. And maybe, frankly, maybe listening to Led Zeppelin and having long hair and wearing puka shell necklaces and bell bottoms, maybe that isn't cool with their friends. It's just that these days everything can be cool, I think, if mm-hmm. you just own it. No, I didn't get into any of that. And my dad was a sports person, but he was not a stats Not a person. stats guy, right. Right. Yeah. He loved sports. He wanted to watch sports. He wanted to play sports. But he did not get into the math of sports. Um, and he didn't, like, wear sports outfits. Mm-hmm. You know, like, the idea that you would... The idea that you would wear a jersey, uh, that that idea, not only did it not get imparted to me, but the idea never entered our home, right? Like if someone with a sports jersey came to the threshold of our house, they did not bring that idea in the house with them when mm-hmm, they came. Mm-hmm. I don't know how, but it was it was many years later that I realized that adults were wearing sports jerseys. And that that was, and then that became a real thing. And I was always astonished by it. Like, why are you dressed like a little boy or like a, what? I mean, you could also be wearing a postal service uniform, right? Right. Like that's a uniform. (laughs) It's like, you're dressed like an army man. You know, I, I am a hundred percent on board with that. I think for me, there, there are two scenarios where you could wear something like an actual Jersey. I'm not talking about like a t-shirt that maybe has your team logo on it. That seems fine. But like what you're talking about, the Jersey, if you're going to a game, like a, like a, an NFL game, I think you wear, you could wear a Jersey hat for sure. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, sure. If you're at home, a hat, definitely. Oh, a hat. Yeah. If you're at home and you're watching like a playoff game or Super Bowl. And your team is involved. I think wearing a jersey in that scenario, because maybe you want, wish you could be at the actual game and can't be, but you're trying to pump pump things up a little bit. I think mm-hmm. that's a perfectly acceptable and appropriate place to wear a jersey. But I wearing see. a jersey as a attire, like, I'm going to go out. I just need to go grab a few things at the store. I'll slip the jersey on. Mm-hmm. That's where I have the disconnect as well. And I don't... I don't, there, there is a whole concept of the, like, wearing clothing that is meant for people involved in sports, wearing it when you're not doing the sports is a little, I don't, again, that's a disconnect for me. I'm not, I'm not going to rule against it here, but I'm going to say I don't understand it. You know, like, like wearing basketball shorts, if you didn't just come from or are not heading to go play basketball. Really, uh, basketball shorts in any in any situation, I don't understand. Except don't understand. on the basketball court. And well, he, not not even then. Not even, not even then. then. <laughs> no, they're so weird. They're so weird. I don't want to. Uh, basketball shorts are made out of that material that I don't ever want to touch. I don't want to touch it in a store. I don't want. I don't want that material on me. I don't know what it is, but that that kind of weird silky. The material seems pre-sweaty. Mm. You know, like it feels like it smells like antiperspirant before you even take it out of the pack. I'll, I'll go a step further. I'll tell you why I've never worn basketball shorts. Um, it's the same. It's actually a bigger reason. 
I don't play basketball because I'd have to wear the shorts if I did. Oh, weird. So I won't weird. even play I, basketball. I believe that you can play basketball and wear the shorts that they wore in the 1970s, <laughs> the like short little shorts with the oh. little pinstripes down the side. <laughs> very, very yeah. sexy. Very sexy Nothing look. to keep you from doing that. <laughs> My dad loved the locker room. The locker room was where he really felt at home. He grew up with sports as kind of the, the primary way he interacted with other kids, adults, the universe. Like he played all sports. Mm-hmm. In high school, he was a successful basketball player, but he played football to a lesser extent, baseball. Uh, But my uncle, his brother, his little brother, you know, he taught my uncle how to play football. And my uncle played football for Yale and was an All-American. So, and then my dad was on the Washington crew and it was the, it was, he was on the next crew after the Washington crew that went to the Olympics and beat Hitler. There was a, there was a Washington, this, in the 1930s, the crew team from the University of Washington was the biggest sports franchise that anyone had ever, could ever imagine. Like when the crew team raced on Lake Washington, tens and tens of thousands of people lined up along the shore to watch. And we fought Berkeley and Stanford and, um, and made our way back East where Washington had never been, you know, no one, no one in Boston had ever heard of the state of Washington, but, uh, we went back there and beat Harvard and Yale and Columbia and, uh, and at the time, the winner of the college championship was the team that went to the Olympics and the crew team went to the Olympics and beat the German crew, which was the world's greatest crew or something, some Nazi crew. And they were national heroes. And my dad was, and at the time, you know, he was a, he was a teenager and there was nothing that he cared about more than going down to watch the, the crew. And when he got to college, he joined the crew and was in the next, the next generation, which was also a winning crew. It was just that they didn't, it wasn't an Olympic crew. And partly it was the world war two came, but the locker room, God, he loved it there. And anytime he could go to the gym go to the sauna, go out and play basketball or go work out, go swim, go do whatever it was that you could do at the gym. Uh, he just, he just, he felt at home in a way that I never felt at home in the locker room or in the gym or in the pool or the tennis court or the handball court, you know, growing up, we went to the tennis club and you'd walk along that, um, you'd walk along that sort of balcony and look down on, and a lot of, a lot of tennis clubs are set up this way. On one side, you've got the big open courts. And on the other side, you look down into the handball courts. Mm -hmm. 
And I remember as a kid being in those places and that whole, that whole trading places vibe of like lawyers who had come at lunch hour and they, they suited up and they had those eye protector glasses like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Yes. Yeah. They'd get in there and play racquetball or whatever and just really go all the way at it, just sweat pouring down, playing this thing. And then they'd go shower off and put their suits back on and go do some more lawyering in the afternoon. <laughs> and I, I, I just remember feeling so fish out of water in those environments. And those guys really, you know, and that was, that was also, I mean, if you were like a young female lawyer at the time, tennis and racquetball were ways that you could be like physical and kind of like prove your medal, compete against the boys type of thing, you know, like, because unless you're at a very high level, you know, men and women can kind of hold their own on a tennis court. Um, and so that was also where all the, as my dad would say, the lady lawyers were like also like kicking ass and playing sports. Right. My dad's sister, aunt Julia Lee was so, tennis she was like tennis from head to toe if you, when you went to their house they had you know they lived in a succession of houses and they were rich people it was always had big houses and everywhere you would find a tennis ball any drawer you opened any closet any time you turned a corner there would just be like a, a can of tennis balls and it was back when tennis ball cans were like pringles cans you actually had to like pop them open with a, they weren't like plastic bottles. They were, they were like, um, Coke cans basically. Mm -hmm. But again, like I played tennis growing up, but I never thrived there. And I don't know whether it was a lack of a sense of competition, a feeling that those, that those are weirdly intimate environments you know, the locker room is a very intimate place, mm -hmm. a jocular place, a, um, a kind of way of communing with other people that I just never felt. But I didn't like, you know, I've played plenty of racquetball, but it's not a thing that I would during my precious lunch hour from my law firm where I got, where I would have a chance to go get some, get a quiet meal and read a little bit. Why I would race over to the tennis club to play freaking racquetball. Ugh. So I never, I never clicked with any of that. And I don't think my dad understood it. It was one of the, it was one of the major gulfs between us because we were very close otherwise, but he never understood why I didn't embrace not just athleticism because I was a ski racer and I'm, you know, a smooth mover, you know, a good dancer, but that kind of athleticism, the team sport thing, the, the like kind of rugged square shouldered jock stuff. Never, never was me. And I think Dan, you know, now I live in a world where that never comes up. Mm -hmm. 
I go to baseball games with my friends. They're very jockey, some of them. Um, you know, I have a couple of friends that can that can throw like an actual fastball, and we go to baseball games. Jason Finn used to score the games. We would go to baseball games, and he'd sit and score them. Oh, really? Like write down the stats as they're happening as a as a way of enjoying himself. And it just always seemed like. I mean, I like to play Sudoku as much as the next guy, but like you're just sitting and you're watching this game and writing down what happens. Weird. But nowadays, I never have to confront it. I never have to go to the gym. I never have to shower in public. I never have to like even address the idea of being in a – sports context but when i was growing up i had to do it all the time every day there was going to be some occurrence some incident where where i was going to be in a sports context and kind of standing there waiting for it to be over and and during your childhood of course you don't realize that that the world that you're in isn't the whole world Mm -hmm. And I, it was part of the, part of what made me feel alienated, I guess, or one of the ways in which I felt alienated was the idea that this was the world, the whole rest of my life, I'm going to be living in this same exact world where every day there's some sports thing I have to navigate. And I guess I don't, I, I don't appreciate as much as I should that, um, once I, once I left childhood behind and could choose my own events, choose my own adventure, I never had to go into a sports context at all unless I wanted to. Right. And that's, that's been wonderful. <laughs> that's been wonderful. Yeah, I can see I that. I mean, what was your relationship to sports? That kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I was never... Like I was never good. I was competent at basic sports stuff. Like I knew how to swing a bat. I, you know, I was never a good hitter. I could catch a ball, but I was never good. You know what I'm saying? So I was like, I I could get by. And then there were some sports I was just absolutely horrible at, such as football and basketball. And, you know, but like growing up in Philly, like street hockey was fun. And I was, I was all right at soccer because I was so close to the ground anyway and stick ball, the stick ball, little things like that. But like, I was never, I was never, I guess you could argue that maybe I'm athletic now, but not athletic in the sports concept. Like I knew kids that just, you just throw them any ball and they could catch it. They could throw it back to you. They could run, they could dodge, they could do all the stuff. I was never, never like that ever. But I really enjoyed watching certain sports, mainly the ones that my grandfather uh, was into, which primarily uh, was NFL, MLB, and golf. It took, I did not get into golf until I was in college. I couldn't even stand it, uh, even watching it or anything about golf. But, you know, he was very much, he would always, I remember all the holiday times whenever we'd come over there, he would always like sneak into his den and try to watch the game that was on. And so that kind of became the inspiration for me. But again, I never, 
Like I never really got into the whole stats thing, you know, I never got into that, but, but as a, as an observer, I was always trying to learn how the game worked because that was the thing for me, especially about like with basketball, it seems pretty basic. It's like, you know, ball and hoop done, but with football, there's so many little things and so many penalties and so much stopping. And I never understood that when I was little until they, my grandfather kind of would explain it to me. And for people who I think are casual, you know, um, observers of a game like football, it seems very disjointed. It seems like there's constantly interruptions and breaks and commercial breaks and replays of of downs and people are like, why are they doing that? This isn't fun at all. But what you eventually realize is if you look at the entire game as a, almost the way you would observe a, a chess match it's, or a battle, it's, well, we're, we're going to move these people here and have them do this thing. And that won't work. And we know it's not going to work, but that's okay because it's going to just throw off the momentum of the other team and, and that will disrupt them. And then the next time we get possession, then we'll do this other thing that will work. It's like you have to think of it like that. And if you think of it as a strategy and and little moves here and little things there that add up to the end result of we won the game, it's a very different kind of approach. And I, I honestly think that that's one of the only games that, that I know of that really works that way. Uh, yes, there is an aspect of that in baseball, working with, with the way that a pitcher will will work the hitters and things like that. But as far as doing that across an entire team, I really think that you know that that the NFL or, or football in general is the only game that's like that. But it took me so long to get to the point where I really understood what was going on and the the subtleties and the nuances. That's what makes football really interesting. And I remember my my grandfather and the other people they they used to really dislike the commentate the commentators and and the constant you know calling of the plays they didn't need it. I needed it to understand half of what was going on when I was learning and then once I had been watching long enough I'm like yeah I don't need to le- listen to these guys they take away from what's happening in in on the game so you know, that was always my relationship to it, but I was not athletic in any way. I mean, you had skiing, right? And that, that was it safe to say that that was your sport of, of choice for most of your life? It was another, it was just like I was saying about other kids, like in the, in the seventies, my dad moved to Alaska. I mean, in the, in the very early seventies, we all moved to Alaska. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad wanted to start a new life after his mother died mm-hmm. and get out of Seattle where he had lived for, you know, the, the uh, lived until he was 50. And his brother was in Alaska and had been up there for almost 20 years by that point. Mm. So we moved up to Alaska and up there, you know, there was a, there was a tennis club and my dad loved playing tennis, but, um, he used to play basketball at the YMCA and then he had a heart attack in 1974, I guess he had a heart attack while playing basketball and it was, you know, a major event in his life, major event in all of our lives. Uh, he was 54 years old and was out there, you know, hustling in a pickup game that he played every day. As far as I could tell, like it was a thing that he'd get off work and suit up and go, 
you know, go street fight with these much younger dudes at the, at the Y. And I was there, I was there in the stands in my little furry hooded winter jacket, watching my dad run up and down the court, you know, and that sound of the shoes squeaking on the floor yes. and the way they sh- shout at each other yep. during the game. And like, um, just the echoing, I remember it vividly. And then all of a sudden he was on the ground, Ugh. but and after you saw, he I mean, had, you saw that, you saw that happen. Yeah. Oh man. After that, um, he couldn't play basketball anymore and he switched to skiing, which was a, obviously a big sport yeah. in Alaska. And of course, in the choice between cross country skiing, which is a thing for very lean, athletic Nordic thinkers, uh, compare that to downhill skiing, which is expensive, involves a lot of equipment and travel and is, you know, very, um, it's very involved and, and it's very fast. Right. Stop it, dumb Alexa thing. <laughs> Computer, shut up. Unbelievable. Yeah, I'm sorry that happened. Um, of course, he picked downhill skiing as the thing. Mm. And so, you know, mid-1970s, he, he, he pivoted to skiing as his new thing. Well... Mm-hmm. In the 1970s, our ski resort, Mount Alieska, was, uh, you know, a, a pretty shabby little built in the 60s local, local yokel ski resort mm-hmm. that had a main lodge and a hotel that were, that were built in a Bavarian style. Mm. The main lodge had a giant kind of, um, I guess what you would call like mid-century Bavarian restaurant bar called the Sitzmark Lounge. Attached to that, and the and the hotel was just a two-story motel. It was just a Bavarian motel right on the edge of a ski resort. Mm-hmm. Attached to that building, the the other wing of it was a pretty cool set of condos apartments that were built in a sort of jumbled Austrian style. Mm -hmm. There was a day lodge, which was also a kind of mid century high, you know, high roof, big wall of windows looking up at the mountain. And then there was another Bavarian looking mid century Bavarian looking four story tall condo building. And then a bunch of log cabins and it had four chairlifts, chairs one, two, three, and four. Mm -hmm. And it was like, it's a very rare ski resort in that the base is at sea level because it's in Alaska. You know, most of the mountains in Colorado and Utah, most of the great ski mountains, Wyoming and Montana, you know, the base of the mountain is 
already at 10,000 feet or 8,000 feet. Right. And this is a mountain. Mount Alieski is a mountain. You could just ski right down to the river and hop in a, a floaty <laughs> and you'll be in the ocean. Wow. In a half an hour, like from the mountain, you can see the ocean. It's right, right. right. So my dad wanted skiing to be the thing. And so skiing now was my thing Ah, because that's what he was going to do. So that's what we were going to do. And I remember, I remember in like fourth grade, he took me to the hockey rink and I got there and I realized that it was tryouts and I put on some hockey skates and there was a coach there and there was a whole hockey rink full of other fourth graders. And I got pushed out onto the ice and, you know, skates wobbling. I skated around the ice rink. I did not know how to stop. I didn't really know how to go. (laughs) And all around me were these other fourth graders, Alaskans, who'd been put on hockey skates when they were one and a half. And these kids were, you know, were racing around me. And I don't, you'd probably don't have that much experience with hockey players, although hockey's a, a big deal everywhere. Did you ever play hockey? Only street hockey. Right. Well, ice skating is very big in Alaska. And these other kids skating around me, uh, this may not be true everywhere, but I think it is. Hockey players are a certain kind of individual. Um, And I think of them, at least in my experience, hockey players are bullies. That that may not be true globally, but at least growing up in Alaska, if you met a bully, you could be sure he played hockey. And if you met a hockey player, there was a good chance he was a bully. Now I know I knew I had good friends that were hockey players. It's not true of, of every hockey player, but the good friends that I had that were hockey players were good enough that they didn't get bullied. Well, I was out on my wobbly skates skating around this rink and one after another kid skated past me and flicked my ear or, you know, said something like you suck as they skated by or whatever. I, and I skated over to the coach and some kid skated over and said, coach, do you remember when I was that bad? And I stood there just like, why am I here? And my, and I looked over and my dad was doing the thing that he did, which was like, well, Maybe this is it, you know, maybe this will be the thing that will get him to love sports or maybe, maybe he'll be a hockey player. This is what little boys do. And I was like, get me out of here. And I think the coach said, yeah, I think he needs, you know, he might need some hockey lessons or skating lessons before he tries out for a hockey team. But even the coach was just sort of unfriendly and and I, I, I stepped off that hockey rink and I didn't put on hockey skates again. Uh, when I did go ice skating, I wanted male figure skates cause they had that pointy bit at the front. 
And everywhere I went with my figure skates, I was resoundly mocked by all the other boys. <laughs> and, you know, it was a thing like, it's so crazy. My friends used to like go get a 12 pack, put on their hockey skates and go like play hockey with each other and drink beer. And I would go and would sit in the stands and drink beer (laughs) (laughs) and, and watch them play hockey. But like the prospect of getting out on the ice, it was just like, no, this is a kind of violencing that I don't, that I don't want any part of. So in answer to your question, yeah, skiing was my thing, but, um, and by the end I was good. I was a good skier. I mean, I'm a good skier now. But it wasn't a thing like, it wasn't like I was grabbing my dad's jacket and saying, please, please buy me skis. Please, I'm desperate to want to be a skier. It was just that skis were under the Christmas tree and the implication was we're going skiing tomorrow, so get a good night's sleep. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That was, that was my dad's, my dad's narcissism was the kind that wanted to do what he wanted to do. And he presented it to you as something he was doing for you. Like, what are you talking about? I got you these skis. Like, like this is, you know, this is something that I've made a lot of sacrifices in order for you to have these, have this opportunity. And even as a kid, I was like, well, no, you wanted to go skiing. This doesn't have anything to do with me. You bought me skis because it was cheaper than, than giving me three rolls of quarters to play video games while you're up there, which I would have been just as happy to do. But he did that, you know, that was his, that was his trick all of his life. Yeah. He's like, what are you talking about? I took you all the way here to this rotary <laughs> club meeting. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, it's a rotary club meeting, dad. I don't, I don't want to be here. We would like to say thank you very much to Squarespace for making this show possible. There's so much that you can do with Squarespace, but it all comes down to making a beautiful website. The website that you make can be to help you turn your cool idea into a business. You can showcase your work. You can blog and publish content. You can sell products and services of all kinds. You can announce an upcoming event or special project. There's so much more. You can even upload your you know, like if you're if you're a musician like John, you can upload your album, you can promote your work. There's so much that you can do using beautiful templates created by world-class designers. They've got powerful e-commerce functionality that lets you sell anything online. You've got the ability to customize the look, the feel, the settings, the products, and more with just a few clicks. You just heard me say products, right? That's right. You can sell stuff on Squarespace, and it even helps you figure out how to package it and handles all the shipping for you. There's so much that you can do, and you can even get domains. That's right. Squarespace offers a brand new way to buy domains. You can choose from over 200 domain name extensions. They've got analytics that help you grow your site in real time, built-in search engine optimization. It's all there, and they've even got 24-7 award-winning customer support. They are encouraging people like you, like me, to make it. Make it yourself. You can easily get started by yourself, and you can make it stand out with Squarespace. They have a special URL that you can go to just to support this show. You can go to squarespace.com roadwork. 
It's that easy to go there, and that just shows them that you are listening to the show. And while you're there and while you're checking it out, maybe you're going to pick up a domain name, maybe you're going to start your own awesome website, you will use the promo code ROADWORK, and if you do that, you'll get 10% off your first purchase of a website or a domain. So that URL one more time is squarespace.com slash roadwork. Just go there and support us, please. Thank you. And while you're there, buy something cool and use that promo code roadwork to do it. Thanks very much to Squarespace for making this show possible. I, Dan, I've never asked you, did you have a good relationship with your dad? I mean, I, I had a, a mostly a non-relationship with him. Is that right? Yeah, we've talked about that. Remember, I told you I haven't talked to him in, since I was eighteen or something, and you were fla- yeah, you yeah, were yeah. flabbergasted. You couldn't couldn't believe it. Yeah, but like growing up, that was true too. As a kid, yeah, he wasn't really he wasn't really around that much because he was you know he was working and I was a little kid. And when he was there, we didn't like we didn't like hang out and do anything fun. And I've Did- I've modeled my parenting. And any, I, I think about what he would have done or not done, and I do the opposite. And every, so, in every so, case, huh? almost pretty much almost every case, the one exception being like he went to work and made a living. Um, so uh, that aside, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I don't think about it like that. It's not like a WWJD type situation. It's more like I, I occasionally reflect back on that, and I try to be really involved with my kids, and I try to hang out with them and do fun things with them and be available for them and um, not just be up in the attic doing Morse code, you know, but actually, like, um, not that that wasn't cool, but, sure. you know, I try to involve my kids in the stuff that I'm doing. If I'm working on a project, I'll, I'll try and involve them in it or keep them in the loop. Um, but no, like there was never a time when I was like, yeah, he's really cool. I want to be just like him. No, never. And we never like played or had fun. I don't think we ever threw a ball around. None of that. I got most of that later in life, either with my grandfather or with my, um, short-term stepdad that I had, um, and then at some certain points with my uncle who lived in the same town. So, you know, I, but I didn't grow up having like a, a consistent father figure really. And so that's been one of the things that I've really tried to take to heart with my own kids is trying to give them that try to be always be there and always be consistent and always, you know, provide them with that kind of stability and uh but it's you know it's it's because it was something that i didn't have as opposed to something that i did have to model after um you know a lot of what i learned and and for example like the way that i the way that i have learned to kind of view the world and think about the world very very much comes from my grandfather who was a, a very very bright scientist uh, he was a metallurgist and he worked for the government uh, doing like anti-ballistics. So, oh. uh, you know, he was doing like the armor plating for tanks and uh, that type of stuff. And, you know, he like won awards and he has patent, had patents and things like that. And, you know, he was, um, his whole approach to the world was that almost using in a, in a way almost using what his view as a scientist was to, to kind of apply that to the world. And I think I learned a lot of the way that I, that I think, I think was influenced by 
the way that he thought in the sense of viewing, viewing the world as, um, as something that could be understood, you know? And yeah, there's mystery in the world and things that you can't understand, but I'm talking about like practical day-to-day stuff, taking, taking a kind of, you know, observe the scientific method, right? Like observing and coming up with a theory and testing it and that kind of stuff. He put that into practice and he did that with the stock market. He did that with a crossword puzzle. He did that with deciding which car he should buy, all of that kind of stuff. And I think that was a very big influence on me, although I never became anything like a scientist. And I don't, I don't think software development is, is anything like being a scientist. I'm always surprised when people call themselves software engineers because my grandfather was very much a scientist, true, true science. And my uncle is, is an, uh, uh, an electrical engineer and my cousin is an electrical engineer. And, you know, I've been doing software for a long, long, long time. And having grown up around people who were, you know, hard science engineer type people, I just don't feel like the stuff I do is anything like what they do. But yeah, I didn't just answer your question. I didn't really have that much of a relationship with him in the conventional sense. And, but by the time that I was, you know, we, we moved away when I was like 10. So, and they were divorced when I was around five. So seeing him on a daily basis was done before I really even have solid memories. Like, do you have many memories, many memories before age five? I have some. But I don't have a lot. And yeah, so I do. I do. We we moved around a lot and I, I can remember things about all the places we lived before I was five. But like would but, do you do you remember enough about like what you did in the day? Because I sure don't. Oh well. Like I could tell you exactly what I was doing every day when I was eleven years old for sure. But I couldn't I couldn't tell you what I was doing when I was four. You know, the the thing was that during a lot of that period, you know, my folks got divorced. And so I was suddenly um, kind of being shuttled around caregivers, different sort of daycares, babysitters. Um, and so a lot of those were kind of traumatic experiences. Yes, yes. Where I was like, oh no, this is terrible. And so I, um, I do remember, I do remember it pretty clearly. Uh, but, but, but again, like you're saying only in fragments, you know, I, I remember like, um, I don't, I don't remember, you know, what I had for, what I had for breakfast. No. See, surprisingly, the food is the one thing I have memories of when I was little. But is that right? Uh, yeah. Like, I mean, I remember like what oatmeal I would have for breakfast, a little instant pack of Quaker Oats oatmeal. And I liked cinnamon raisin a lot. And I liked the maple brown sugar one uh, a lot. And I remember, you know, we would do one packet with a certain amount of water in it. Yeah. But I'm a foodie. You're a foodie. But I mean, like I vividly remember meals, daily meals, family meals. I remember the kind of peanut butter that I liked and what the bread looked like. And yeah, I could tell you in detail all the food I've ever eaten, but I couldn't tell you what my dad was like when I was five. Right. Did he have friends, your dad? I have no, would have no way of knowing. Is that right? Is that right? Yeah. 
What an interesting. He went, to, he went to work, you know, he'd leave for work in the morning. I remember, here's something I do remember is that every morning uh, at breakfast, you know, he had, he would have a little cup of juice. He would drink, have a tea bag. And mm-hmm. I re- I don't know why, I re- see, but it's about food. See, see, that's the key. The key to me is food. Right. And, right. uh, and so he would, it was every morning the same, the tea would be sitting there steeping. And when it was done steeping, he would drink the orange juice in one, one gulp. And then he sure, would take full of vitamins. Yeah. And he would, then he would take, and it would, the glass was in one of those like thin, like 1950 style, little thin juice glasses, you know, the kind I'm uh-huh. talking about. And then he I would do. take the, um, he would take the tea bag out, put it on the spoon, squeeze it, and then put the tea bag into the orange juice glass and then drink the tea. Like I have vivid memories of this. Um, I also remember when I was about maybe eight years old, Qbert came out for the Atari. Oh, Qbert. And it was one of the worst ports that's ever been made, but I wanted it, of course, and it was going to be amazing. And I remember vividly, it was $36 and it was for my birthday. So let me do an inflation calculator really quick. And uh, cause I want to know, guess what year would that have been? Let's just, I don't know what year that would have been. I'll make something up. $36 back then, probably in like the late seventies would have been about a hundred, hundred and 115 bucks now, something like over a hundred bucks. So I just remember he's like, that this is what you want for your birthday. I'm like, yeah. He's like, that's really expensive. I'm like, yeah, but you said you'd get it for me. He's like, but you didn't tell me it was $36. I'm like, well, I didn't know how much it was. I just said, I want the Cuber cartridge. You know, like I don't, I don't care how much it is. I'm a kid. You said you'd get it. And it, with great reluctance, he got it. And dude, that game sucked. It sucked. And I su- oh. and I sucked at it. And then I had to like play it all the time because he had bought it. You know, it yeah. was the yeah. release. And like, I bet you're going to play a lot of that tonight. Like, yeah, it's going to be great. I love it. Um, but, you know, but for me, like my, my, a lot of the things that my grandfather, um, my grandfather was about really, you know, because by the time that we had moved to Florida, you know, I was about, about my son's age, you know, I was in my, my like tweens and, uh, and he became definitely the, the main male kind of influence in my life, which is interesting because, you know, I, I feel like a lot of like it's weird it's almost weird i wouldn't say i was i wasn't raised by him but he you know my mom did the raising but he was there and he was that kind of a stronger influence in my life but there is something missing because he was f- very far removed from my generation you know with your parents back then you know my my how old how old was your mom when you were born do you know how yeah, much age she was, difference she was 30 uh Four, right, right. Wait a minute. Right, right. You, no, no. Yeah, thirty-four. Were you your your youngest? Were you the youngest in your family? Remind me. No, no my sister was younger. Uh, younger, and my mom was thirty, uh, thirty-six then. Right, which back then was like worrisomely aged. Pretty kids. old. Pretty, yeah, pretty old as far as they were concerned. Yeah, my mom is twenty-six years older than me, and my dad is twenty-seven years older. So 
you know, but my grandfather, of course, is was significantly older. So there was that there was something missing in that sense that you would have gotten from having a dad who's only one generation removed, you know, who would have been less than 30 years different. I'm I'm 35 years older than my son and I'm like 40 years older than my daughter, almost 39. Yeah, my dad was 40 seven when I was born. Wow. See, and he still did, he still did all that cool stuff with you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sure. Yeah. But, um, but he definitely was, um, in some cases a generation older than my friend's parents, right? Like my dad would have been, my dad could have been your dad's dad. Absolutely. Quite easily. Easily. Right. Yeah. So it was, <clears throat> I never felt, he would remind me all the time, oh, I'm so old. But it, he was coming at it from an at, from a jock standpoint, like, I can't keep up with you kids anymore. <laughs> uh, rather than from, a, a, the, the benefit of it was that my dad was <clears throat> shown a lot of respect and deference uh, by other parents. Right. Like when my dad was in a situation dealing with my friend's parents, they all, uh, they all, you know, deferred to him. And it was always a little weird, even when my friend's parents would call my dad Dave, because it, it, and of course he didn't make them feel this way. He wanted them to call him Dave, but there was a kind of feeling of, of like presumptuousness, like, Oh, you're going to call my dad Dave, huh? Like, oh, and you know, and the talking about like pretty accomplished people that had every right to call my dad Dave, but it still felt a little strange. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because he was, you know, he had a kind of, uh, I mean, he just had a personal authority that, that at least back then, you know, you called people Mr. when they had that that kind of tone. Right. Can you imagine Dan being a, being a father who took no interest in their kids? Absolutely not. I don't, I don't even have a, a reference point for that. It happens a lot. It happens a lot. Yeah, it does. What could that be about? What is that Uh, about? Maybe you didn't want kids. I mean, I didn't, I didn't want kids. But now that they're here, I'm really happy about it. <laughs> yeah, right. But I didn't when it when it came time to like talk about. It, I'm like, oh, I don't really want them. I don't because I think part of it for me was that I was pretty sure that I didn't know because I didn't have like a good example. Really, I didn't think that I would do a good job at it. That was part of it, and the other part of it's like, well, like I won't be able to do all my own stuff. You know, all the all the things that you think before you have a kid and then the kids show up and you're like, wow, what the hell was I doing all this time before? Like, this is what it's about. Like, this is, this is why we're here is, is for this. But before that I was like, hell no. I'm like, you know, like I want to do my own stuff. And, yeah, now, do your stuff. and now they're like, of course, I'm, what was I thinking? Of course, I'm glad they're here. They're amazing. It's just, this is great. 
Yeah, that's the thing I'll never uh, I'll never understand it because it affected my life and it affects so many people's lives. It affects just the standard of what people expect from dads. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously there are plenty of moms that put both their kids in the car and drive into a lake. Well, yeah, there's they're not all great moms. But just the kind of way that it used to be fine for dads to just sort of fuck off. It's, it, it, I don't know. It's strange. And, and, um, yeah, it's, it's gratifying. It's gratifying to know that that's much less common now. But, you know, I'm living in a world where a lot of my friends are creatives who live rock and roll lives and they got to be, in their forties and looked around and sort of decided they weren't going to have kids. And it's, I feel like it's really, I don't know it living in this world. It's very different from if I lived in a world where, uh, like, like maybe a slightly more conventional world, I don't get the feeling that if I were working at a business that I would have a ton of coworkers that didn't have kids. It would seem like, I mean, there are plenty of people having kids and I am, I imagine there are people probably maybe even people listening to the show, but definitely there are worlds and worlds of people where every single person they know has a kid and it would be kind of, inconceivable to imagine or, or maybe they have one friend, you know, or they have, or they have a, uh, like a gay sibling or something. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, their whole social world is, is defined by all the people that have kids and in their family, like all their cousins all have kids, kids everywhere, kids, kids, kids. And even though I had kids very late, I mean, I was, um, 40, well, what would I have been? 43 when my daughter was born. Mm -hmm. There are, I mean, the, I would say the lion's share of my friends here in Seattle, the people I came up with, the people that I play music with, the lion's share of them do not have kids. And, and maybe won't. Um, and so, you know, having kids in my social world makes me kind of an outlier. And, and, and weirdly the other rock musicians I know that have kids either have older kids cause they had them when they were in their twenties and they, they were raising kids that whole time that we were all staying out all night and playing music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they were coming home at three in the morning wasted <laughs> and, uh, you know, and they had kids at home. I don't mean, they're all good. They're all good people. They didn't come home at three o'clock in the morning wasted and, and, and smack everybody around. They were living their best life. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean the burden of that <laughs> fell to their wives a lot of the time, but, but, uh, of those, of those friends of mine that have kids, we don't really socialize as parents with one another. 
you know, we, it wasn't a thing where we all had kids and then it was like, ha ha ha, we're all like rock friends and now we're going to raise our kids together. It was like we had kids and, and we still see each other mm-hmm. in a mute music context. How are your kids? Fine. Good. How are yours? Fine. But the idea of like getting together with them, uh, I mean, before the, before the pandemic, like mm-hmm. it didn't really happen. None of my friends bring their kids around and I don't bring my kids over there. And I don't know what that, I don't know. I don't know why that is. I had a conversation with a really good friend of mine the other day who's been, you know, married now a couple of times, rock star. And he was saying, yeah, my, my wife and I are just, we're just sort of deciding that we don't want to have kids. Right. And, And I said, huh, I thought that you really wanted kids. He said, well, I, I did and I do, <laughs> uh-huh. but it just feels like we've got a nice thing going. You know, we like have a routine um, and we kind of get to do what we want. And so, I don't know, She she's scared of, she doesn't like the idea of having a child in her, like it gives her anxiety. So I think we're just deciding that we're not going to have babies. I'm like, yeah, wow. Yeah, heavy. Um, There's so many billions of people in the world that never, for whom that calculation never, it, it would be the craziest thing for them to consider that you would, consider it like that, you know, that, that you would make that decision based on those criteria rather than, I think for most people, it's just like, oh shit, we're having a baby. I mean, that has to be true, right? Through Globally throughout time and to this present day, most of the people in the world have a baby because at one point they go, oh shit, we're having a baby. I mean, compared to the number of people that are like, now we begin to have a baby. It must be such a much larger percentage of people that are like, oh, shit, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, I guess we're having a baby. Isn't that true? I think it is true. Wasn't that true for you? Oh, shit, we're having a baby? No, I mean, it was very planned. Oh, it was. Oh, yeah. Very, very, well. very, very planned. The most planned. <laughs> not because of me. Not not by my choice. Not not by right, my but, choice. But it was very, very planned. planned. Yeah, very. Planned, 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 and planned. Researched. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's interesting and cool. Planned, 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 and planned, and planned. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. Nothing, nothing left to chance. That's fascinating. I guess. I mean, I guess that's probably also commonplace, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think so. I think if, if you, you know, I, I realized, um, a number of years after, um, after I was married, many years after I was married, that one of the expectations about getting married uh, is that um, you will uh, you will have kids? That seems to be a thing that people who get married do, which was surprising to me 
uh have but changed. yeah but yes i see so do you make do you make lists mm. yeah i'm not i'm not an obsessive list maker or anything like that i don't um like making lists isn't the thing that i i do for fun i make lists to remember things but i'm not like a list i'm not like excited to go make a list no i'll make a list if if i'm like oh my god i gotta remember to do these 30 things i better make a list and then i'm the type of person that will make the list don't tell merlin but i'll make the list and then after i knock maybe three or four things off of it i will never look at the list again and I've tried like a million to-do apps and a million reminder apps and a million things, and I just sort of have given up. The way that I the way that I make lists now is I have an email, a special email address, and I will usually like right before I'm going to bed at night, I'll remember that important thing and I'll email it to myself. And the the subject line will be the thing I need to do, like mail that thing, and then I'll send that to myself. And that's how right. I, that's my list, the way I make, make lists now. But if I'm, if I'm working on a project, if it's a software development project, then yeah, of course I'll have lists of all the tasks and dependencies and things like that. But for personal, like for my personal life, I'll make a list of crap I got to buy at Home Depot. I'll make a list of things I need to remember to take somewhere, but I don't, I don't like doing that. You don't seem like you, I would, I would say you never, never make a list ever. It is rare, extremely rare, that I make a list. Yeah. Uh, but I made a list last night of things I need to do uh, at, at my house. And that list is just, I look at it and it's, um, it's daunting. Yeah. And, and partly what makes it daunting is that a lot of the things are uh, things where I have to make a phone call. Mm. Like a list is one thing, but a list of phone calls I have to make? Ugh. Uh, 